Hey, everybody, just a couple words before we begin with our guest, Jonathan Mohan. I mentioned at the beginning of the year when I launched the Hoddle Hoddle Conference Econ panel that there were a couple episodes I had in the bank that I wanted to release over the holidays, didn't get to it. This is another one of them. Uh, we talk about a lot of timeless stuff here. That's why I wanted to hold this a bit. But just two things then to mention, we'll get right to the show. The first was uh, the one thing that wasn't really timeless. Uh, we recorded this in uh, October in New York. Fernando and myself when we were visiting. Uh, that was post Bitcoin Cash Fork and pre-cancellation of Segwit2x Fork. And uh, just interesting, you know, take note of the price at that time of both Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and Jonathan's observation of uh, analyzing it as a composite. Pretty sure he would feel the same way uh, today for long-term hodlers. But uh, in any event, take note of that. And then we spend the meat of our time talking about counterparty risk, insurance, arbitration, on the blockchain. Really interesting. We're, we go from sort of the high level philosophical down to, you know, various business models that might require trustlessness, you know, versus the technical realities uh, sorting between the two and Jonathan's interest and work in the topic. So uh, certainly timeless, I think, as far as what people are trying to do in the big picture with Bitcoin and Ethereum and blockchain. I'd like to thank Jonathan for his patience in this episode being released. And without any further ado, here is Jonathan Mohan. Okay, everyone, welcome, welcome to another special on location interview here on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host, joined by my co-host, Fernando Ulrich. Hello, Matthew. And today we are joined uh, and going to introduce Jonathan Mohan. Jonathan Mohan is a blockchain-based consultant in New York, being full-time in this space since 2012. He is founder of the Bitcoin meetup, Bitcoin NYC, and also led education, outreach, and partnerships for the Ethereum network in New York upon its launch. Since May of this year, he is also co-host of the popular podcast, Let's Talk Bitcoin. Jonathan, welcome to Crypto Voices. Awesome, happy to be here. Thanks a lot for joining us. So uh, obviously, first question we gotta ask you as we speak, Bitcoin is now roaring to another all-time high, $5,200, give or take. What do you think? Uh, I don't understand where you got 5200 because as far as I'm concerned, it's 5700 because I have these things called Bitcoin, not these uh, core or cash coins. Um, so if you're a real hodler, I think uh, the price of Bitcoin is uh, nearing 6000 if I uh, if I'm recalling correctly. That is true. I see. I see. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, flesh that, flesh that theory <laughs> out a little bit more. Well, it's, it's, so Bitcoin forked in August, and if you still have your pre-fork Bitcoin, you have a composite of both coins. So the price of a Bitcoin is those two put together. Sort of like a, a weird way to think of it as a stock split, but... Um, Basically, you, you have two assets that represented the, the holdings of the first. Um, and in that regard, it, you have to multi add the price of cash to the price of core to get the effective price of Bitcoin from last year or whatever, if you've held for more than six months. So the price of a effective Bitcoin in, in, in total is, is about, I don't know what the price of cash is right now, but let's just say it's 5,700, 5,600, something like that. No, I totally get it. Um, is that a view that you tend to evangelize and, and take that? Well, I mean, it, it depends on what type of Bitcoin you're talking about. But if you've held for at least six months, then that's the price of a Bitcoin right now. 
So would you say if we keep having forks on the way on the future, on the horizon, would you say you have to to get the Bitcoin price, we have to sell all of them together? Well, it depends on what you think about. So Bitcoin, I think, is most analogous to what would happen with um, AT and T, yeah. where AT and T was forced to break up into like 20 companies. But if you were a shareholder in original AT&T, you got proportionate shares in all of those companies. And if I think it's it's one of the unsung stories in Wall Street. But if all you did was hold mm-hmm. your AT&T shares that were broken up into all the other companies, then when AT&T recoalesced, you'd have like a fifty thousand percent return or yeah. some like insane, in, insane multiple. And I, I just see Bitcoin every time it forks as sort of a composite of that. That as long as you have holdings before the fork, you have a, a composite yeah. of all the different types of Bitcoin, um, and then you don't need to really care which one succeeds or fails, because you have this sort of um, composite of all of them. But if someone wants to buy Bitcoin now, what would you say? Buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin Cash, buy both? I don't know. I, I, I typically try as much as possible to avoid giving financial advice. Um, and we don't do that on this show either. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, the, the, theoretically, <laughs> educationally. Educationally, I think Bitcoin's the only token that I'd consider giving investment advice on just because there isn't some company or organization behind it, um, to our knowledge. But um, I don't know. I, I, I'm always shocked when people say that the all-time high is when they want to get exposure to an asset class. Yeah. Um, but then again, Bitcoin has, you know, approached all-time highs for the past like two years straight or a year and a half straight so I don't really know um, I would say the fundamentals of Bitcoin are fairly strong but I, I I wish I had the ability to pontificate accurately about price I think most people who do just like to talk for the sake of talking so I'd rather just not even <laughs> no, I mean, we've, talked, we've talked about this a lot this week I look at the the use cases for for Bitcoin Bitcoin Cash might uh, might have evangelized or, or pontificated a different use case now, uh, at least in their in their marketing. But um, it is hard uh, as a, as a hodler or a holder. It is hard to spend Bitcoin as it goes uh, as it keeps going up. I mean, it, it becomes more and more like a uh, this store of value or savings. And if you you spend it, you quickly want to get some more back to replace the balance <laughs> that you just uh, right. you just spent. So we've, we've talked to economists about this, many people about this. I mean, what are your thoughts on the, the longer term use cases for Bitcoin? Is it just going to remain as a store of value or is it going to at some point stabilize, become less volatile and people, you know, transaction fees, obviously with Lightning Network and things will uh, perhaps lower. Uh, what do you think about future use cases for Bitcoin? I, I have encountered almost nobody who uses Bitcoin as a currency. I'll, I'll, I'll go, I mean, there are some of them, and they're almost always the philosophically oriented people who go out of their way to not care about the fact that it's not really a currency. Um, but I'll be in a room of, you know, 90 or 100 people. The next time you're at a large event, just spend the 30 seconds to take this poll, which is just ask how many people have used Bitcoin once as a trans as a form of transaction. You can see how many people raise their hands. And you go, how many people have used it 10 times as a transaction? How many people have used it a hundred times? How many people have used it 200 times? And typically before you even get to like around 50 to 100, you'll see like three hands up. And you're like, what type of currency, name a single currency that you have used where you have used it less than 50 times in tra- 50 transactions. 
And it's not a currency. I mean, the only time that would be like, like I, I was in Hong Kong and I was there for two days and maybe I did a little more than 50 transactions. And like, there you go, you got me. But that was because I was in that country for two days, right? Yeah, people who say that they're in Bitcoin for years and you ask them how many transactions they've done and they can't keep their hand raised if you say the number 50, that's not a currency. Would you say this, uh, the, the current price dynamic and the volatility, would, do, would this prevent Bitcoin from becoming a, a widespread used currency? I think outside of the price, Bitcoin's doing that in and of itself. <laughs> it doesn't need any help to have it not be used as a currency. Obviously, the price increases keep people wanting to hold. But I don't know. I, I also think that that's like a, a silly argument because people also want to actualize gains. So, I mean, I've had the experience of saying, well, I'm not going to buy that. And then Bitcoin goes up a little bit and you're like, well, now I'm going to irrationally believe that that, that product is now cheaper yeah. and now I'll buy it. So I don't, I don't ever buy this misconception of like, well, people just hold for the sake of holding. It's like, yeah, well, people die. Eventually they spend their money. Everyone wants to actualize a gain. So I would think, if anything, when the price of Bitcoin rises, you'd see more people spending it because they'd want to actualize their gains. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's actually what happens to me. I mean, when I when I saw the price this morning, fifty-two hundred, that's exactly what I thought. I might realize some gains today, just a little bit. Yeah. Then I replace it later. <laughs> <laughs> We interviewed uh, Eric Voorhees. He said uh, something that that uh, stuck with me. Is like you know you can explain. Bitcoin in, in the most rational way, economically, philosophically, in a way that anyone or, or the person that you're talking to completely understands it. Um, but really, at the end of the day, what gets people excited, which is clear in 2017, and not just for Bitcoin, but for all crypto, what gets people excited is when they see the price go up. It's yeah. really what it all comes well, down I, to. Well, I also think that, you know, you talk about like intrinsic value theory nonsense, And it's like fundamentally gold will always be worth something because chicks like shiny metals. And I think that in, in today's age, fundamentally Bitcoin will always have value because dudes like shiny math. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's like, ooh, shiny math. It's like, I don't understand why all these guys think Bitcoin has value. And it's like, well, girls think, you know, gold has value because it's shiny and it's pretty. And guys think Bitcoin has value because it's math and it's it's shiny math. <laughs> it's cool. I, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's but um, yeah, Eric's a really, uh, a really, uh, interesting person and he has a I, I always find myself fascinated by the projects he does because he takes a very philosophical approach I, which I believe is sort of the best way to approach blockchain based use cases which is like how can I disintermediate the agency relationship for a specific activity that I'm enabling with my business model process such that it's the blockchain that's doing the service not me so if you look at Satoshi Dice where it was basically you betting with Bitcoin. Um, he wasn't the gambling service, it was the Bitcoin protocol itself. And then you look at, you know, Shapeshift and he's, he's not an exchange because he's non-custodial. Um, and then you look at what he wants to do with Prisms, which are basically asset-backed securities. He has a very interesting understanding of looking at how to uh, use the blockchain, I think, to its most maximal effect, which is to disintermediate the component of custody in your business model process. And I think that he does it quite successfully. Yeah, and I think keeping it simple is very important. And he seems to do that in his, his uh, projects. And this this new one, he's on the board of SALT. He talked about that as well. Oh, he's on the board of SALT? He is. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, 
I always thought that they were competitors, and it's it's really funny. So um, when I say them, I mean uh, Prism and Salt are, are two projects where you're, you're basically uh, leveraging people going long in a specific asset exposure class. Um, and it's funny because in this space, I always tell people that it, your competitor is always one pivot away from being your client yeah. um, or your partner. So that's actually really nice to hear. I'm glad that they're <laughs> working on each other's projects. Yeah, Salt is an interesting one for me as well. And I, I commend all the people that started that because a lot of people, I think I see some tweets, you know, they give it a bad rap or it's, it's leveraging up blockchain and Bitcoin and it's, uh, yeah. you know, but... You, you can be long and short, uh, essentially, and take a loan on SALT because if you take a loan at a you know, 70% loan to value on your Bitcoin holdings and fiat, you're, you're sort of, at that moment, you're long fiat because you're taking the loan in fiat. But as long as you pay off your loan, you still have your Bitcoin, your collateral, so you're still long Bitcoin. I, I don't know. It's just, so I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a thoroughbred New Yorker. And uh, every time I look at an asset class and see if there's like the commensurate depth in there and the volumes. And the question isn't, is there leverage, but is, you know, is there leverage yet? You know, so you look at Bitcoin, everyone's like, well, we don't want leverage in Bitcoin. You're like, it's, it's, there, there will always be leverage. And if you want Bitcoin to succeed or you want it to be real, uh, then, you know, people are going to start creating leverage in it. And, um, I'm just waiting for my, my big, uh, my, my, the, the, the salt based Bitcoin, uh, short squeeze. Just, uh, I think it's going to be beautiful and amazing, and I'd, I'd love to experience it. But yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I, I'm really excited to see what uh, Salt does and what Prisms do. Um, and I think that there's um, all of the things that people hate about the traditional financial industry aren't going to fundamentally change. They're just going to re-implement themselves in blockchain. <laughs> so <laughs> I see Salt as a foundational first step into a lot of those services and activities moving over. Um, and I mean that in a good way, but I know a lot of people don't. <laughs> so what other services or what other financial services do you think would be easily or, or effectively implemented on blockchain? Well, so I'm... Personally, working through um, a blockchain project that I haven't actually like codified yet, but I'm still working through how, how it would logically work for um, uh, uh, business to business uh, counterparty risk um, mm -hmm. insurance mm -hmm. for like smart contracts or federates or oracles. And I think that um, as soon as you can start mitigating counterparty risk with insurance products, that's sort of like another foundational sort of product in the space. Just because if, if you look at the financial industry, how much like errors and omissions and all these other like like things that no one actually pays attention to but when you add them all up you realize that those actually make all the things as frictionless as they are um i think that um uh risk like counterparty risk insurance not like healthcare or stuff like yeah. that is going to be a foundational enabling technology to traditional finance moving over to blockchain i think that obviously salt and, and shapeshift creating you know, these, these uh, methods of, of, of leveraging or, or securitizing assets is, is gonna be very interesting. I think a smart contracting virtual machine that actually works will be very exciting to see come about. We're not quite there yet. Let's see, what, what else I think would be very exciting to, to see? Um, I think that foundationally, what we need um, arbitration to be uh, enabled on, on smart contracting frameworks. I think it's, It, it, it's the height of stupidity to think that um, you can create a new world and not have courts. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of this space is just 
and I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking about myself in this, which is why I'm, I, I think I can speak authoritatively on it. It's just a bunch of 20-year-olds who have no life experience telling the world what the world needs. And uh, you have all these basically kids who I'm using this self, you know, applying this for myself as well, that say, well, I actually don't understand what's occurring here, but let me tell you, you know what your problem is? Let me tell you what your problem is. And this entire notion that what businesses want is to live in a world without lawyers is, I think, entirely missing the point because I think businesses love lawyers because they just, they're descriptors. Yeah. They explicitly describe an activity that you want to engage in. What businesses hate are courts. So smart contracts miss the point because it's actually not the contract you want to be smart, but the resolution or adjudication of disputes on the execution of that contract that you want to be smart. And that to the extent that you see these smart contracts fail is to the extent that people take an actual contract, put it into smart contracting, and then as soon as like a, a, an instance of adjudication needs to occur, they realize, um, oh wow, look, there's no, like this, this entire thing fails. Like what's the point of even using this? It, bro it broke down. Um, how do we come to consensus on how to modify this? So like right now in Ethereum, if your smart contract breaks, what you do is you mutually need to come to consensus to write an entirely new contract and then point the old contract to the new contract. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so in traditional business, how many times does one or both parties have a disagreement about a business agreement and they don't litigate it. What they do is say, okay, we'll just call that a wash. Why don't we write an entirely new contract, pretend the old contract didn't exist, and then point that old contract to the new contract and pretend that this is the thing we wrote a year ago. No, they, they fight like dogs over the first thing, and they want it arbitrated because it's going to preferentially treat one person versus the other, or they say, no, that's not what we agreed to. So you find that the surface area of applications for quote-unquote smart contracts is in, it's just ex extremely limited. Like if you, if you look at like 99% of like actual use cases that want to be enabled by a quote unquote smart contract, they just can't use the technology because they're not some sort of, they don't have a binary resolution. It's not like, it's not a, it's not a vending machine. It's not an options contract, right? Like it's, it's an actual legal agreement and all of those thousands of intermediate sort of fuzzy states of performance or non-performance is something that you need a human to arbitrate over. Um, and I think that um, one of the sort of I, I, like foundational products in this space that need to be built to enable the sort of decentralized future um, is, I think, uh, insurance on the basis of like counterparty risk insurance and arbitration. So it's just like if we have an agreement, how do we um, how do we uh, modify or make sure that the, the agreement can maintain cohesion even after a dispute arises on it? Um, so if, if you look at how smart contracts work right now, Businesses want an agreement to be cheap and easy. So right now, you know, you can spend, I mean, we can spend five minutes and, you know, effectively a dollar worth of time and have a legally binding agreement with each other. And then in the one in a thousand instance where we would want to become litigious over the agreement that we have, we would then go to court and it would become super expensive to, to, to litigate and fight. But if we want to do smart contracting, you basically have to... So basically what we're doing is we're spending a dollar on the basis of a one in 1,000 chance of needing to spend $100,000. But in smart contracting, you have to front load all of the costs in assuming that a dispute will arise into the instantiation of the agreement. So your costs of the resolution of that dispute becomes 100% because you immediately need to eat that cost. So like if you had a business model process in traditional businesses, you might spend 500 bucks or a thousand bucks on lawyers 
And then if it, a fight were to arise, you'd then spend, you know, 50 grand or 100 grand fighting it out. But in smart contracting, if you want to have an agreement, you have to spend, you know, if you pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars to developers to basically write the contract so perfect that it never has a failure state, which is the same way of saying, well, let's just 100% of the time assume that we're going to have to describe every single arbitration resolution that needs to occur and then front load that cost into the instantiation of everything we do. Which is impossible. You, 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 you cannot predict all the possible disputes you have in the future. Right? Well, it's, it's also, but it's also just nature. So like, by definition, you're, a system or dynamic that you build will always fail in the way that you didn't account for because it resolved true all the ways you did account for, so it only can fail in the way that you didn't. So it's just a matter of time. The universe will always find a way to, to invalidate a premise you set up because that's, that's the only way that it will stop working is if, yeah. if, it's, if it's a premise you didn't account for. So I, I think that one of the most overlooked foundational necessities in this space is um, arbitration. And that one of the biggest lies that people are told um, is, at least in America, <laughs> um, is you know, you'll have your day in court yeah. and uh, nobody has their days in court. Um, like even businesses don't have their days in court. Almost everything is settled out of court. And even with businesses, I had a friend who had a quarter million dollar uh, lawsuit and he took it to a, a, a lawyer and said, I, I have a, this is a slam dunk case. Let's just take this. I want to sue them. And he goes, it's, it's, what do you, it's not enough money. I was like, what do you mean? A quarter of a million dollars. He goes, yeah, it's not like, that, like this isn't even worth fighting over it in a court. So he's like, by the time we're done, you just, you just eat all, all the, the fees in the court. And, you know, if, if, if the 10 years of the, what is it, not 10 years, like five to eight years of the salary of an average American in one lump sum isn't enough to churn through the legal system of America, then like we don't, you do not have a legal system. It, it basically, it's like not, not even in business do people have access to a legal system. Like only when it's multi-million dollars do you then even consider taking it to trial. So I think that like 99% of disputes, or if not more, and I would love to, that's a number pulled out of my butt, but it feels right, so I'm gonna go with it, are just, they're, they're arbitrated or um, they're settled out of court. Yeah. And I think that, um, that you know, the, the cool thing about America is that mutually agreed upon arbitration is legally binding, um, unless there's some sort of like meta reason why it doesn't work, like there was fraud or this or that. So if you could build an arbitration framework for smart contracts on blockchain um, that both parties legally agree to enter into, um, then the vast, vast majority of the time, those agreements would be legally binding if presented before a court of law. And uh, I think that the, you know, to the extent that all these people pontificate that the blockchain will disintermediate, blah, 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 and the state, and we'll have this whole new world, it's like, well, what's more powerful than getting people to use your court system rather than the traditional court system? Those, those to me are like two areas that I'm, I'm, I'm most interested in personally is, um, is insurance and um, arbitration on the blockchain. So regarding this, it's, it's very interesting. I definitely agree regarding this force majeure uh, arbitration of failed smart contracts. Is this something you're actively researching, working on? Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, I, I'm still playing around with the, the name, but I'm interested in... Um, I'm interested in a financial product called a surety bond. I don't know if you've heard of it before. And um, I actually think that there are um, several material um, sort of use cases for uh, surety-based um, products. 
mitigating counterparty risk in blockchain or blockchain-related activities. Um, and then um, the, sort of the problem with insurance is, and it's sort of an eat-your-own-dog-food moment, but you can actually have insurance without arbitration because you need a claims process. And that you, there's no such thing as describing a claims process 100% in, in code. That's something that a human needs to arbitrate. So it's sort of one of these problems in my mind where I was saying, okay, well, I actually want to do, I want to do a platform to enable insurance products to mitigate counterparty risk for contracts. And it's like, okay, well, I couldn't get away from the fact that you would actually need arbitrators to resolve the claims process just because that's something that's just, you know, everyone's like, well, we'll have AI for that. And it's like, I don't think we'll ever have AI that's better at fuzzy logic than humans. I think that's what makes humans amazing is like when it's highly interpretive and there isn't a right answer, humans are the best thing in the universe at sort of understanding and resolving what a, what a, a thing that, that that sort of resolution should look like. Anyway, I'm sort of, so, sort of, uh, <laughs> I can talk about this forever, so I don't know where I'm going. No, please do. Continue but, on the, the um, but but I, it's it's. I think that there are just hundreds of really material use cases that aren't being effectuated because there isn't some sort of arbitration framework involved. Insurance is just one of them. But um, but yeah, so I, I am I'm currently in the process of of, of starting blockchain in the context of um, insurance or a platform to enable other people to, to issue insurance. Um, and then um, it'll probably have an aspect or a component of it that has some sort of arbitration framework. But I, I would love, it's, uh, arbitration is one of those problems that I don't want to solve, I just want someone else to solve, but no one's done it yet. Um, I know that Vinay Gupta has um, the Materium project, and I read his white paper. <laughs> and I found it really cool because he's trying, he's describing what he considers an arbitration framework for like, like a hard assets, but um, it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> it's like, it's one of those things I would, I would love for someone else to do. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. And they could go hand in hand. I mean, insurance uh, could be the best way to, to mitigate. Well, yeah, so actually, so right. So I guess I can describe what uh, surety is and why I think it would apply in a blockchain. So, um, Sorry, let me, let me back that up. So one of the things that really pissed me off in this space is that there's no way to commoditize counterparty risk or conformity to best practices. So everyone's just sort of existing in this state of zero price discovery on the amount of exposure to counterparty risk that they're bringing themselves into when they engage with a particular party. So like you'll see like three or four services and you have no way of understanding which one of these represents a greater risk than the other. And everyone's like, well, we should have some sort of accreditation body, or we should have this, or we should have that. And I think that the greatest form of accreditation is just you being insured. Um, and then it's not, they don't care what your level of conformity is, but you care because it just eats your own margins. Mm -hmm. So it, you would have this sort of back-end process of wanting to clean yourself up so your policy payments would go down on the risk that you represent. Um, but all I care about is, are you insured against the total exposure that I would have in the engagement that I have with you? So one of the things that, that pisses me off is you can't just like look at a, a specific smart contract or a specific service provider and just be like, so in, in America we have, in New York City rather, um, every food vendor or every, uh, has um, a rating. And it, it's, a, it's a little sign and it's uh, A, B, C, and D. Mm -hmm. And basically everyone has an A, and the problem is you're, you're more than willing, you're more than uh, able to have a C. It's just that the social shaming stigma of having a C on the front of your store gets everyone to sort of conform to having an A, even just on the basis of like, they don't care about the lost, they don't care about like having people 
know that they're, it's like, it, you know what I mean? It's, it's not about the, it's not about the money even, it's about the reputation because they don't want to be considered a, a, a C. And, and I think that one of the things that I would love to see in this space is a methodology for enabling like ratings of the risks or conformity to best practices of, of an actor that you're trying to do business with. Um, and I think that um, insurance represents a, a very needed product, but a way to sort of bring this sort of uh, calming hand to the market. Uh, it's sort of funny, people are, are, are creating like pseudo insurance products so, um, like, one of the things that people will do is they'll, they'll hire, like, a code auditor to, like, review their smart contract. And they do that because then they can go to their investors and say, well, this person signed off on the, the code review. And then their investors feel like, okay, well, now I have the confidence to put money in. And I was like, well, if the code auditor was any good, there should be somebody willing to underwrite a policy up to a specific amount of claimed loss on the basis of that, that, that audit, Right. And then you could just go to your investors and be like, hey, actually, we're now insured up to, you know, $5 million loss on the basis of this specific smart contract audit. I, so I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by, by mitigating risk. And I, I, as someone who considers himself uh, fairly well read in this space, sort of am constantly disappointed by how, <laughs> how many people expose themselves to so much risk with so little understanding of the risk that they're exposing themselves to. So you'll see these people who like put, you know, $20,000 into a token sale and you ask them just, you ask them, okay, what does the blockchain do? And they go, oh, I have no clue. You're like, what do you, do you not even know the people on the team? They're like, no. It's like, what do you, oh God. And I feel like, um, you know, creating a methodology for assigning uh, risk profiles to that. They would just like, they don't need to be sophisticated. They just need to know, oh, that, that's a B. Oh, that's a D. Oh, that's, you know, that I can immediately understand. But the thing that, that interests me is I was looking at, and I, I'll keep it high level just so it's, it's I think you'd find more interesting. I was looking at like, um, I, I like to look at trends and then um, project out what I think is going to happen in one to two years. And I don't know if it's a failing of my mind, but I think anyone who tries to project anything more than two years out is just entirely full of shit. But um, so it's, it's, it's sort of like a horizon. I think like the, the yeah. further the horizons may be maybe eight months, maybe 12 months, maybe 18 months, but it's not really more than that. And one of those sort of things that I, I was looking at was, OK, well, the trends are blockchain is going to become a thing. Enterprises are starting to adopt it, which means there's going to be a whole ecosystem of B2B related engagements. But also at a greater, higher level, traditional finance, modern finance is going to begin reeffectuating itself into blockchain. And what are sort of those like foundational, like atomic instruments that just are at the bedrock of all of modern finance um, that would need to be reeffectuated, not necessarily in an identical way, but in a similar way in blockchain to start getting those people to want to come over. Uh, obviously, one of those is arbitration. But the other is uh, a really stupid thing called a surety bond. And a surety bond, they're not bonds, they're insurance products. It's just, it's one of those things where like finance likes to use words eight ways in three different places. But um, so, so a, a surety is a type of, uh, of uh, insurance product where um, a consumer gives an agent money. The agent acts on, uh, performs with that, that, that money in a, like a continued performance basis but it represents a massive counterparty risk to the consumer. So an insurance agency will actually um, underwrite a policy for the total loss of the customer on the basis of the performance of the agent. Um, so like in construction, uh, contractors will be bonded up to like half a million or two million or three million dollars. And that's because to build a house, you need to give the guy like 80% of the money 
that you need to pay him for the entire contract. What's to stop him from running away with the money or from screwing it up or from having some sort of partial payment state? So like, what if he builds half the house but he stops halfway through? How do you get compensated for that? If he farms bonds, is a synonym, right? I believe so, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so surety is a way to underwrite that in construction. But in uh, finance, in banking and money services businesses, it also exists. And that's because in money services businesses, like, so for instance, if you want to be a money transmitter, um, in each state, you would need to collateralize a bond up to a specific amount representing the volumes or cash, consumer's cash that you have at any one moment in your business model process, such that like, and it's in, in America for money services businesses, it's not because they run away with the money, but because like if there's a civil litigation and your funds get seized, the consumers can get their money back immediately and then the, 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 those assets transfer over to the insurance company that waits until the litigation's over. But it's, it's, it's fundamentally because um, in almost any instance where you would need to post collateral, um, businesses would rather purchase an insurance product to bond the collateral to retain working capital and lose margin. So like a company would rather have working capital than, um, than just a, a little bit of margin. So if you said, hey, would you prefer to have $5 million in working capital or at the end of the year have you know half a percent greater margin, for most, you know, not Goldman Sachs level whatevers, they're gonna say, actually, I'd rather have the extra $5 million in working capital. And so, so in, in, in money services businesses, every single money service provider could collateralize their own bonds, but they don't want to spend, you know, $100 million, $50 million doing that. They want to bond the activity and then retain that, that working capital and just lose a little bit of margin and then just offset that cost. The other instance, um, and this is sort of where the, the high-level philosophy came from on my end, was that um, in 1930, banking died and the birth of modern banking came about. And I actually believe that the, the, the foundational atomic instrument for all of modern banking is FDIC insurance. Because nobody, the, the, I think one of the biggest lies we're told is that people trust banks. Um, after 1930, no one ever trusts a bank again. And to this day, they still don't trust banks. And you know that's the case because if you have half a million dollars, for, for those of you who are blessed with, with this problem, if you have half a million dollars in your bank, you don't have it in one bank account. You have it in two because FDIC is a quarter million and you keep 100% of your assets backed by FDIC insurance. That's not trust. Right? So they're like, you know for a fact no one trusts a bank because the second they have more capital in an account, then the insurance backing, the restitution of those funds, if the bank is insolvent, they immediately make sure that it's, it's that amount. And, and if you look at what FDIC is, it's basically saying, well, this is a government socialized surety bond that will compensate you up to this specific amount on the basis of the counterparty risk represented by the bank on their continued performance on top of your funds. And, and it's because of FDIC insurance that we even have modern banking. And it's basically, it's, it's, the, it's the lubricant that facilitates all the trust that we have and everything that, you know, the, the money that's put in banks. Um, and that, that money's only put in the banks on the basis of the, the level of, of risk exposure that they don't have because of the insurance product underwriting a restitution to that amount. Um, but and perhaps the difference with the FDIC uh, is that it's not 100% fully backed. Well, the FDIC is 100% fully backed because the U.S. government is underwriting a policy where FD, if FDIC ever get called, they also own all the monopoly money. So they can print as, money, as much monopoly money as they want to give you back the FDIC insurance calling. And, and, sure. um, but I think different 
different in what you are describing so, what you believe. And, I, and I, mean this, I mean this in every sense of the word, but modern finance is a confidence game. Um, <laughs> and uh, so in, in etymological terms, confidence games are, are things done by confidence men who are people who instill confidence in you. Confidence men are typically known as con men. Uh, because of the confidence games that they instill. But FDIC is beautiful because, because everyone knows that if there was a systemic failure in FDIC insurance, the government would just infinitely print money to give everyone their money back. They know that FDIC is solvent and capable of delivering those funds, which gives them the confidence to not fear a run on the bank, which would prevent FDIC from ever needing to get paid out. Right? So it's this self-fulfilled prophecy where because they know you can do it, they don't fear that you can't do it so that it doesn't happen. Agreed. No, no contest. But compare <laughs> that now with what you envision uh -huh. on the blockchain because I believe you would envision something quite different. Well, I mean, FDIC already happened in, in, in Ethereum. They, that was, it was like 60 or 70% of people in Ethereum lost money in the Dow. And they said, oh, wow, the reality of settlement is that we just got screwed. You know what? We're just going to fake reality to give ourselves a bailout, to fork consensus. And, you know, if, if anything proves that once we switch over to blockchain, we'll still have our $1.8 trillion bailouts when people don't like what happens, it's exactly what happened in the Dow, um, which was a couple people said, well, we want our money back. Um, so we'd rather break reality in order to do that. And that's what happened in 09, that's what happened in Ethereum. But um, this, this installs a, a kind of moral hazard in Ethereum that seems to me we don't have in Bitcoin and other blockchains. I, um, I, I, I think that all it did was elucidate the moral hazard in Ethereum. I think Ethereum always represented a fairly large moral hazard. Um, I think one of the funniest things that people are looking at is uh, it's you know when when the <laughs> when 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 you live on a farm and you know you're going to be brought to the slaughter, but you're like, but he's such a nice guy. Um, so everyone keeps calling Ethereum decentralized, and Ethereum keeps saying, look, we're going to transition to proof of stake. Look, we're going to transition to proof of stake. Look, we're going to transition to proof of stake. And it wouldn't surprise me if 10 people represent 50% of the ether in existence, because it wasn't disseminated widely. It was, you know, as, 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 as heavily um, mined or, 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 or it wasn't as widely disseminated as Bitcoin. Let's just leave it at that. When Ethereum switches over to proof of stake, is decentralization 10 people? You know what I mean? Um, so I, I think that there are a great many moral hazards in Ethereum that people aren't paying attention to. But it's, it's good. I mean, uh, I, I, I still would like to, uh, this is very interesting uh, discussion, but could we flesh out your thoughts on how a blockchain-based surety bond or performance bond would have perhaps better... Uh, moral backing. Oh, sure. Well, FDIC or then a fork, a questionable fork. Yeah. Okay. Um, so moral in the Anglo-Saxon uh, <laughs> Abrahamic sense or moral in the like utilitarian Kant sense? Um, Take it as you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but um, I, I was just referring to FDI, FDIC insurance. Um, so, so I think that if you actually look at what people call trust, in modern banking, in modern finance, there's no such thing as trust. It's just a mitigation of counterparty risk by an insurer. And I actually, I, I would love for someone to invalidate the premise that I have, which is that people don't trust banks. They literally only trust banks to the extent that an insurer has underwritten their exposure to that bank and, and find an, uh, an instance in the marketplace where that isn't the case. 
because my, 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 my fundamental premise is that in all of, of, of modern finance, there is no such thing as trust. It's just mitigation of counterparty risk through an under a third party. And that the, the sooner we can do that in blockchain, the sooner we can actually see all of these use cases and requirements that are contingent on that being the case start effectuating themselves in this. So I, I, one, of, one of the things that I do is I, I do um, uh, like use case ideation or architecture. So I'm not a developer, but I, I come at it more from the business side. So before you know what it is you want to build, but you want to figure out how to effectuate this use case or this business model process in a blockchain, even just at a conceptual level, I like to work with those people. Because a developer is a developer, they don't understand like a specific use case or a specific business model or sort of the nuances of how to effectuate a business. They just go, well, you just gave me a spec and I built that spec. Um, so I like to work with those projects and sort of the ideation of the use case. And the more and more, more projects I work with and the more real that they are, the more I realize that they need insurance underwriting their activities or their processes. Or that like, you know, they, they have real customers that they want to sell to. And then I say, I say to them, well, this is a, a person who represents an instance of counterparty risk exposure. What if you just insured that activity? And they go, oh God, that would be amazing. Then it would be way easier to sell this to a real company as to why they should use my blockchain versus that, because then they, they don't have that that collateral at risk uh, sort of instance, like oracles to me. And every time you see an oracle, what you're seeing is a performance on a specific activity where there's collateral at risk, where if you told someone, here is an oracle who is insured up to $100,000, and this is an oracle that has zero insurance, and you have a business model process where like 10 grand is at stake, which one would you prefer to be the oracle that you use in your business model process? The one that's 5% more expensive, but entirely insured for your use case, or the one that isn't? Um, and, and, and insurance is a thing that becomes self-enforcing because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a confidence game in the real sense, not the con sense, which is that there's a selective bias of a person who wouldn't want to be insured, because why wouldn't you want to be insured? Right? <laughs> it's one of those products that once it exists, very quickly people all use because it says something about you that you don't have it. As it relates to how uh, surety can be translated into blockchain, um, I sort of got to the, the money services business thing where they could post their own bond or they can get a surety to post the bond for them. It, there's a couple things. One, the beautiful thing about having an underwriter insure against you is now they're the bag holder who is specifically in continual um, incentive alignment to hold you accountable to conformity to best practices. So one of the problems in this space is there's a, a, a moral hazard, right? A, a negative externality of like, okay, this person says they're a good actor, but there's no police in blockchain. There are no regulators in blockchain. There's no one holding them to continued conformity to the stated best practices that they claim that they have. And literally the way that you would effectuate that in a free market process is you say, okay, we'll make someone the bag holder for an instance of bad practices and now, to the extent that they would continue underwriting that activity, is the extent to which they will actively police conformity to that best practice. And it's sort of a way of like effectuating of truly free market regulators is uh, entirely, if you, if you look at how would you create consensual regulate, regulatory conformity, and that's like, okay, well, what if, if, what if the insurer who is underwriting your policy says, you know what, you can do whatever you want in the world, but if you want me to underwrite your activity, this is what you need to do to, this is what you need to do, and this is what you need to report to, and this, this reporting schedule you need to do so I can know that you're still doing this. 
Um, and that's sort of like self-enforced regulation that's mutually agreed to in the same way that, um, oh, geez, I, I just lost that train of thought. Um, sorry, this is, this is me pre-coffee. I'm a little more eloquent afterward. Um, you were talking about the MSBs with the surety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 light, Lightning is brilliant. The team at Lightning are absolutely brilliant. But I think that payment channels are a solution. It's like a perfect example of a mathematician solving a problem that like, but it's, I, I say this in a lot a ruder way that I don't want to say in a recorded context, but um, it's a perfect example of a mathematical solution to a, a problem that doesn't conform to the business realities at play. And that's not to say that it doesn't work, but that uh, payment channels as described are highly restrictive to the use cases that can be enabled by them in a real world context because they require 200% collateralization of the total engagement. So you have each party put 100% of the, the risk exposure that either party will have at any one time into the contract such that you can maintain that sort of Nash equilibrium of non-trustlessness in the engagement. And trustlessness is the most expensive way to conduct any business model process and is almost always inappropriate for most use cases. So right now, like, Blockchain can enable trustless activities, and it's only the trustless activities that use blockchain because they're the only ones that are willing to pay the costs associated with a fully trustless solution. But trust, trust-ish, where it's it's still fairly not trust. There's there's a component of trust, but it's not like 100% Byzantine fault tolerant trust. Is good enough for 99% of people. So, for instance, I was talking to somebody. Well, I was talking. I think it was Peter Todd or, or it was Matt Crawl. It was one of those guys. And we were joking about uh, POET, which is um, Intel's uh, consensus methodology. It's proof of elapsed time. And it's beautiful because it effectuates the same business model process of Bitcoin mining, but instead of finding hash collisions, they have a trusted computing module on every processor that just says, well, I attest that 10 minutes have elapsed. And then it gives you a, a, a receipt for that. And then they just do a, a, basically a lottery on the basis of those receipts. And then on the basis of how many of those receipts you have, you increase your quote unquote hash rate. But there's no, there's no work that goes into it. And they go, well, that's fundamentally flawed. And I go, why? It actually entirely reaffectuates uh, Bitcoin mining just without the hash rate. And he goes, yeah, but in order for a business to use that as their consensus methodology rather than Bitcoin mining, ultimately you'd have to trust Intel hardware. And I said to him, I think for the vast majority of business-related security applications, if you told them that the risk profile represented by taking the thing that's 10 times cheaper is that their risk exposure is they have to trust Intel processors, I think that's a level of risk that they're willing to take. <laughs> like, like there's a level of, conf of, of security to absurdity that a lot of people have at a philosophical level that when you get to business, people are entirely fine with because again, once there's a specific risk represented and it's, it's nominal, you just, you just insure against it. So uh, payment channels um, are great for a certain use cases, but let me give you an example of one payment channel use case where let's say you have a, a methodology for, for uh, using Lightning where the collateral at stake will be $500 or let's just say $1,000 to keep it easy. And it doesn't really matter what the period of that is. What matters is how many concurrent instances you need at any one time. And let's say for your business model process, you need 10,000 concurrent instances. Okay, so are you going to have to lock away $10 million of working capital in order to effectuate your business model process on blockchain? Well, if you're gonna use a lightning channel, you would, um, but you could, you could also lower the, the reserve requirements 
but I don't think people would want to trust you because it's your money, right? So how do they know that you're solvent? Well, what if you had an insurer who would underwrite a bond for your side, the business's side of the activity, insuring against the, the, the total, the, the $10 million total, um, and you could get consumers to understand that to their mind, the insurer underwriting the, the business's side of the bond of the of the of the bond the posted uh, payment channel is is good enough correlative with having actually posted that bond, which is in the real world, right? Like when you when you need a when you need a bondsman, the bondsman posts a bond. Everyone assumes that that's as good as you having actually put up the money. That you can then see uh, massive amounts of other use cases effectuated through payment channels, because it's like, hey, well, you know, now you don't have to now you don't have to become a pseudo hedge fund, where you know you have to lock away ten million dollars or five million dollars or hundred thousand dollars to just do your damn use case where you're getting a two percent return. You, you you get to use that capital, um, and I, I can't think of any business where like people would need to uh, lock away capital where they wouldn't just rather lose a little bit of margin to retain that capital. Um, so I think payment channels are really interesting, and I think that um, they're great for counterparty risk. So, you know, when Bitcoin first started, people said that Bitcoin's great because there are no chargebacks. So what it did is it created an environment where counterparty risk went from the merchant to the consumer. And by and large, companies are far more trustworthy than a random anonymous customer because they, they have an ongoing relationship where the customer is just this one-off person. And that's why chargebacks exist. That's why 60 countries are banned from engaging in, 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 in the Visa network because merchants can't assume that liability. But with Bitcoin, the liability is the consumers, not the merchants. So the merchants like, yeah, I'll take your Bitcoin. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you that, that thing to Nigeria. Sure, I have no problem with that. Um, and I think that payment channels are another use case where um, most of the counterparty risk isn't the merchant, it's the consumer. Um, and the consumer's fine with being non-bonded. And I think most consumers would be fine with the, their counterparty being bonded. But that the, what Lightning enables is a way for a merchant to mitigate consumer risk, not consumer mitigate merchant risk. Um, at least for, for most of the use cases you'd actually see using Lightning, it's predominantly consumer risk that's mitigated, not merchant risk. Most merchants I'm aware of in the real world have absolutely no problem with going to an insurer and opening up the kimono and saying who they are, commensurate enough with them being able to issue them um, a product, like a, 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 an insurance product. Uh, the, the other instance where I could see um, a surety or, or performance bonds being uh, necessary is, as I described before, with oracles. So you see a bunch of people who um, say, well, we'll have a federate internetwork or we'll have an oracle. And I go, okay, well, what's preventing them from doing it wrong? And they go, well, their reputation. And they go, well, reputation's an asset. It's not a liability. Like, you, you build up a reputation, and then you can, you can steal from it. You, 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 it's not a, it's not a, a liability. Whereas, a, like, a surety or performance bond is forward-facing. It's not backward-facing. It's on the basis of future performance, not previous performance. So I don't want to know what you did a year ago or how good you were yesterday. I want to know how good you are tomorrow. That's the risk I'm, I'm exposing myself to. And I think that anytime you see an Oracle or a Federate engaging in a business model process in your blockchain, that the risk exposure represented by their activity should be bonded. And a lot of blockchains have done this. So you see projects that have master nodes, right? Or projects that force you to post some sort of a massive amount of, of collateral as sort of your, your risk to be pulled against if you, if you engage in some sort of like illicit activity or, or wrongful activity. And those are like, like how much is a master node? Like how, those things are insanely expensive. Or how much are these, like how much are those bonds? 
And then you get back to the real world, which is, okay, well, any sufficiently, uh, sufficiently sized bond posted for the exposure represented by their activity is going to be something that they would rather bond with an insurer and retain the working capital for than post themselves. So you sort of get back to needing a performance bond or a surety bond. And to the extent that projects are looking at doing real-world blockchain applications, not blockchain protocols, but like app decentralized applications, almost all of them are going for the federate delegate oracle model. And they're either going to use reputation, which I think is nonsensical, or they're going to ask the person to post their own bond, in which case that person's going to want to just have someone else collateralize the bond for them the second they can. Um, so if I just told you there's a product out there, so like let's say you have a blockchain and you have oracles on your system, and each oracle needs to post half a million dollars to, to bond it. And there's a product out there that'll post the collateral for that for you. Um, you just have to open up the kimono, show who you are, have some sort of best practice risk profile, and you are a good actor. And that's, that's a regulatory ARB. Everyone thinks the regulatory ARBs are the negative, not the positive, right? Where it's like, well, this is illegal in America, so I'm going to go to China and do it in China because it's, it's legal there, right? Well, how about like, well, here's a policy for underwriting people that is cheaper on the basis of you being a white market actor that is more expensive if you're not. And then it's just, oh my God, there's regulatory arbitrage for best practices. Well, I'm actually a best practice guy. I'm actually not a fly-by-night scammer. The cost for me to uh, to open up my kimono is nothing because I'm not doing anything illegal. And then now look at that, you, you get underwritten and let's say you know 20% of the nodes in the network are underwritten and the others aren't. And if it's enough of a, of a, of a of a, of a strategic advantage, they'll outcompete the ones that aren't. Um, in the same way that like Bitcoin miners always said, well, we'll go to somewhere that Bitcoin isn't illegal and sort of arbitrage the electricity or arbitrage the regulation. What about like inverted regulatory arbitrage where it's actually best practice people who are making more money, not the people breaking the laws. So you have um, like a payment channel collateralization. You have, um, what was it, like, like Oracle or Federate. Um, uh, counterparty risk mitigation. And the other reason why that's important is not even just from the consumer perspective, but um, I think I said it to you guys before, I don't know if I said it while I was recording, but um, I, talk, I, I advise a couple of projects that are looking at being enterprise level solutions. And their main problem is going to be getting it past the compliance officers of these real businesses to want to use their blockchain. Um, and every time they have an Oracle or every time they have a Federate engaging in activity, the second I say, well, have you considered insuring that activity? They go, oh yeah, that, that would actually be a perfect solution to get this past the, the overhead of the compliance. Like, imagine if Lloyd's of London was underwriting the oracles in your blockchain, and then you go to a Fortune 500, and you go, well, you know, how much easier would that conversation be to get them to re move their business model process onto your blockchain? Uh, and then the, the, uh, the third use case would be, um, <laughs> this is sort of where arbitration gets cute. The, the problem with arbitration, the whole notion of a, of, a, of a smart contract is that it's self-executing. The whole notion of self-execution is that there is a balance of funds that the um, application itself gets to immediately disperse on the basis of inputs. Um, so like an event occurs, and then on the basis of that event, if then sequences are triggered, that uh, has the thing itself issue funds. That's sort of when people say smart contract, that's kind of what they mean. And when it comes to arbitration, it's the same problem with courts, which is you get a finding, right? You get a quarter million dollars, right? Great, now you don't get a quarter million dollars. What you get is the liability of that person owing you a quarter million dollars and then hope that they actually pay it. 
Um, so I think when, when people think of smart contracts, they're typically thinking of smart arbitration. And smart arbitration to me is uh, self-enforcing um, uh, resolutions for punitive uh, damages or, or damages therein for like an activity. And I think that if you want to do arbitration on a blockchain, the only way it works is if the arbiter is able to assign uh, damages or restitution. Um, and that money has to come from somewhere. So what if, if you wanted to have a policy called arbitration insurance, where if you're engaging in a specific smart contract, you could actually underwrite up to a specific amount, um, damages or punitive damages in the event of a dispute, that when it goes to arbitration, that that's actually the pool of funds that the arbiter can pull into to assign losses to either party. Um, and then you could actually just have that all be effectuated on chain, not the, the arbitration, but the, the, the restitution to the injured party. And then when you want to engage in a smart contract with somebody, um, just like a, a one-off contract, that um, you could actually have that contract be insured in the state in the, the state of a failure where you would want someone to arbitrate over it. Um, and then not need to, you know, like say, well, let's let's have this, uh, this let's let's you know each post, you know, the money necessary for going to court when that's the case. Rather, like we want this, we, we want to do this contract. Let's get someone to underwrite the risk exposure, whether they perceive this being for the, the the probability of it like failing, and then just pay into that policy such that if it does fail, it, those are the funds that are get called on to restitute one or the other person. And I think that like those are like three use cases that I think are sort of foundational to mitigating counterparty risk in, in this space that makes it far more analogous to um, the traditional markets, which is sort of like, um, would, sort of comes down to this, which is people would rather retain. So, so if, if, you want to, if you want someone to engage in activity with your collateral at risk, they need to post some sort of bond. Um, people would rather retain that working capital than post the bond themselves. Um, and the other thing is that um, I don't think anyone wants to see a world where regulators come to blockchain, but they want to see best practices or conformity to best practices be made transparent um, and enforcing. Everyone's all about self-enforcing, right? So the way that you guess self-enforced consensual regulation is to have someone represent the person underwriting the risk exposed by non-conformity to those best practices to be their own regulator. So I, I, I think that you know when people say we want regulation to come to the blockchain, I actually think that this is the most non-coercive free market way to do it, which is that if you wish to seek a policy that says you are conforming to these best practices, you sort of opt into it. That, oh, that's what I wanted to say. Sort of like a, a housing authority. So you like a really good neighborhood. What happened was, you know, 100 years ago, they bought hundreds of acres around you. And they said, well, we're a, a private territory and we're going to make other laws associated with our agreements that whenever you sell this house, that person has to agree to these rules before they can buy that house. And we're our own enclave that have other rules that the, the, the state or the city doesn't have, but we're our, our own housing authority. And I think the way that you can bring regulation to blockchain in a business context is to do it with insurance underwriters that create their own regulatory housing authorities that say, look, I'll underwrite your activity, but you have to conform to this and you have, we have, you have to allow us to inspect you and you have to do this and do that. But it's a way to maintain this like new world dynamic uh, while simultaneously getting sort of all the best aspects of what people try to effectuate when they talk about regulation in the traditional markets. A lot of topics there, Jonathan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But, I, uh, I, no, I, it's good. We're, I think we're running up on time anyway. But uh, no, I, I, I have one question, I think, to sum it up to make sure at least I'm hitting the mark uh, on this. So when we talk about 
all of the risks that you talk about, we talk about counterparty risk, we talk about arbitration, uh, we talk about insurance, force majeure, smart contracts breaking down. So basically all of these potential liabilities that need to be solved. And let's just say we settle on insurance for the blockchain to solve a lot of these things. Do you think that this will eventually be done completely where the point where we don't have to rely on the man, the trust of the man, but we're relying on the trust of the machine? I think that humans are humans. Sort of, it's, it's, it's like the, the problem with socialism is that they fundamentally use humans, right? So it's like if, if you, only if humans weren't humans, socialism would work, right? It's, it's like creating a dynamic for dogs where it requires dog to have wing, dogs to have wings and then blaming the dogs for not, not flying. I think that to the extent that you effectuate methodologies of consensus at scale is to the extent to which those methods of consensus look entirely analogous to the pre-existing methods of consensus formation. You know, as Bitcoin has grown in number of people using it, you realize, oh, wow, hard forks are now based entirely on the politics of the hard fork, not the merits of the technology. And you're like, oh, well, why is, why is Bitcoin turning pol political? And it, it's because politics is an emergent property of consensus formation once you reach a certain mass of humans. So I don't ever think as long as humans are the inputs we're putting into a system that you'll ever escape that. It's just... The thing that blockchains enable is transparency and methods of, of restricting behaviors in specific areas um, that don't exist in traditional markets that will make a better Pandora's box but won't stop it from being Pandora's box. Like it, it'll, it'll still suck, but it'll be the less sucky thing that we've had in a long time. So you still think there could be this one unknown that breaks down and then the human sets come back? No, no, no. I, I just think that like any consensus methodology that's adopted by people will look a lot like things that we've done before. And it, it's sort of the joke about, about like uh, constitutional republics. America is not a democracy where it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's disgusting, ugly and horrible, but it's the least horrible thing we know. Um, I think that what blockchain is doing, and that's the hope that everyone sees, is that it's so much better methodologies of consensus formation than this constitutional democracy republic thing that sort of America's played around with. And I think that it is a lot better, but that to the point where we get to the scale where it's like an American level consensus formation is occurring on a blockchain, it'll be crappy and sucky and shitty, but it'll be the least sucky thing we have. Um, and you know, instead of having something that works 40% of the time, we'll have something that works 60% of the time, and that 20% is is what we leave to our children, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. okay, very good. Well, I think we'll have to leave it at that. That's a very interesting. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hopeful pessimist. Yeah, no, very interesting uh, views there. Thanks a lot for your time, it was a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, for, for our listeners, uh, would you like to give any information about where to find you? Yeah, uh, meetup.com slash Bitcoin NYC. Also, you can check out Let's Talk Bitcoin. Um, I'm there from time to time. And and that's, that's about it. All right, terrific. Well, thanks a lot for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very much.